Well, today we are going to wrap up our summer with the Celts. And I, I don't normally do this. Normally, when I get done with the series, I just move on. Um, but I really, I, I found that this series on the Celts interesting and moving and insightful. And so I decided I really wanted to do kind of a wrap-up to it and uh, kind of an overview. And so today is going to be a lot of uh, uh, a recap and a lot of review uh, unless you missed a sermon, in which I might give you some insights you missed. Um, but really, I just want to talk about what, what I learned in this sermon series, like what stood out to me, and, and um, kind of give some closing thoughts. I, I did not know much about the Celts when I started this series. I knew some. I knew uh, I had a professor named Andrew Purvis. He was a theology professor, and he was Scottish, and he had a good Scottish brogue, and uh, he... He, was, he would talk a lot about the Celts. He even taught a class on Celtic Christianity, which I didn't get to take. But I feel like I got some of it because he would talk about it some. And then my friend, friend Graham Standish has done a lot of stuff with the Celts as well. He's preached here before. Um, and so I, I knew that there were some things we could learn and glean from the Celts. But I, but I was excited to, to dig into the research and think through some of that. And, and so I did sermons this summer. A uh, little recap here on intro on Celtic thinking, on how they thought about theology, and they were very Trinitarian, on the idea of thin spaces, Celtic crosses, which was a fun sermon if you were there. We were inside, and um, I pointed out that our, our window at the front of the sanctuary is a Celtic cross, and that was a funny one for me because everybody was sort of just letting me nerd out about all these symbols and all this stuff. And then when I started pointing around the sanctuary, people got real awake and were suddenly like, what? What? That's a Celt? That's huh? Um, I even asked, has anybody ever seen a Cairo symbol before? And people were like, no, I've never seen one of those. Yeah, there's one like right up front, right over the cross in our sanctuary. And uh, so I talked about how we don't notice our symbols I talked about Celtic way of evangelism and mission and how they were so mission-oriented. I talked about them, uh, their focus on monasticism, on community living and building abbeys. And I, I kind of said that I, I started to think, I'm starting to think even more about uh, Northminster, more like an abbey. I don't want to change the name because it would be confusing for people. But I think of it more like a community than I do really a church in the traditional sense. Uh, we talked about the Anam Karar, the idea of a soul friend. Celtic prayer. Last week I talked about light and dark. Uh, so but before I give you some of my lessons from the series, I actually want you to participate for a moment. Okay, so I'm going to give you about a minute, and I want you to turn to the person next to you or in the car next to you if you need to roll down your windows. Um, but what, what, what stood out to you in this Celtic sermon series? Like what was something you learned or something you've been thinking about or something that you have questions about? And if you weren't here, just listen to somebody else. That's okay. Um, but, but take a minute and talk to each other. Go. So for me, I'm not going to be able to take your comments from here. But uh, for me, I, I really learned a lot in this Celtic series. And, and for me, it was, it was important to... Give me some language for stuff that I have thought, but it was just a new way to say some things that I've been saying or thinking about or, and, and new ways of articulating some of those things. And, and neat to say, oh, some of the things I was thinking about how church works and how faith works, um, actually, those are in our tradition. We just kind of lost some of them. 
And so to be connected with those in a different way I thought was, was kind of neat. The, the word I would use to describe how I think about the Celts now is the word deep. Deep. Okay, I, I think about them as being deep. So let me spell out uh, seven ways that I found the Celts to be deep and ask this sermon today. I found them to I found a deep historical connection with the Celts, first of all. So the Celts come from this world where Europe is wild. It's kind of crazy and rough and and it's dark and the world is unorganized and you didn't always know what enemies were out there or what the future held. The people were very tribal. They were very superstitious. They lived in a world that was uber-spiritual. They believed in gods and spirits all around that you tried to either keep happy or at least keep appeased. They saw the divine everywhere and in everything. And when I look at their world and I think about that description, I actually see a lot of our world in that description. Does anybody else? Anybody else think our world feels a little dark and chaotic? Anybody else think the world getting a little tribal? Okay. If you don't think the world tribal, turn on the news and then turn on a different news channel and see how they report the exact same stories. We live in an incredibly tribal world. We don't always know where the threats come from. Like a virus that crosses an ocean and disrupts our entire universe, practically cripples our society. And I know that we talk about this world as if it is a secular world. I hear this all the time. Oh, we're living in a secular age. And yes, the world has moved away from Christianity. The world has moved away from Judeo-Christian values. But I'm not sure calling it secular is really the description I would give it. In many, world, in many ways, we are living in a sacred culture where everything is sacred. My rights are sacred. My body is sacred. My choice is sacred. The planet is sacred. My triggers are sacred. My identity is holy. I mean, we have a world that doesn't, this isn't a secular world. This is a world that makes everything holy. Everything except traditional religion. Everything except Christianity. And so my question is, how can we be a Christian faith that not only survives in this kind of world, but also brings this world back to Jesus? And I think the Celts are a great example of that. It shed light on how to do that. Number two, the Celtic Christians, I think, were focused on deep experiences. That has been my theme for this year's preaching, is how do we experience God? And I think the Celts were very uh, experience-oriented. They wanted to know the gods and the spirits. They wanted to feel close to them. They went to places where they could feel close to the gods. They called them thin places or thin spaces where the gap between the divine world and the natural world was thinner than others. And as they became Christians then, they wanted to experience the God that they knew in new ways. They wanted to understand, oh, this is God as Trinity, so how does that relate to us? Jesus is fully God, fully human. How, how do we know that? How do we experience that? They wanted to, to continue to experience God in nature and their relationships with others and in the work in the world. <clears throat> Following Jesus was something they did. It wasn't just something they knew. It wasn't just some membership card that they had to a church. No, it was something that you did. It was something that you experienced. Jesus said in John 8, 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my world, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. To abide in the word doesn't mean just read your Bible. Remember when Jesus says this, there's not a New Testament yet. Okay, he can't mean the Bible because he's, there's not, there's not well, the Bible yet. There's not a New Testament yet. He, to abide then, especially in the Gospel of John, is an active verb. It means to remain, to stay, to continue, to hold fast, to live into it. And Jesus' word is more than the Bible. It's his teaching. It's his life. It's who he was, his guiding, his leadership. If you're really his disciples, you abide in his word. You do what he says. Okay, that means if you're not doing what Jesus says, you are not truly a disciple. To really be a disciple is a doing thing, not a knowing thing. So this is such an important distinction. You don't just read about Jesus like you might read about Australia. You, you live there. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You live there. You go on the journey. You don't just think. Now, that doesn't mean thinking's not important. The Celts actually have a lot to teach here, too, because number three, the Celts were deep thinking. They were theologically focused. When St. Patrick showed up to evangelize the Celts, the church had just argued for like a hundred years about their theology. First, they argued about who Jesus was. Is he fully God? Is he fully human? Does he pretend to be some and then others? How does that work? Um, and then they started arguing about the Trinity. Well, is the Holy Spirit a part of the Godhead? How do we say that there's one God and three persons? Like, the church had just argued about this, had just really set their thinking on this and their language for this. And so when Patrick went into the Celts, he would took very seriously helping them understand who God was, particularly when they had all these different gods and spirits. He wanted to correct their theology. That was part of it. But... For them, it was not just about knowing, it was about how they were experiencing God. So their language was used to help describe what they were experiencing. Okay? Uh, experience comes first. Okay, it's like feeling anxious and then going to a counselor to talk about that anxiety, to name it, and to work through it. Right? You feel a pain. Then you go to a doctor and you diagnose the pain. You date someone, you have feelings for this person, and then eventually you say, I love you, and eventually you define the relationship. Okay, the feelings come first. The experience of God comes first. The theology comes later. Now, the value of the theology, the value of the language, is it helps define the relationship. It helps you experience, because I can name what I'm experiencing. Yeah, I can say, this is what I'm experiencing with God. Of course, there's a temptation for the words to take center stage. We see this all the time. In Christian history, <coughs> oh, and I see this in a lot of Christians today, where they care more about being right than about loving. They care more about having the right scripture to have the right theology, and they feel like the job of a Christian is to defend what's accurate. But I'm telling you, okay, if you can have all your theology right, if you're still a jerk, I'm not sure you're following Jesus very well. Okay, how you live is important. Okay, you can, you can read the scriptures right, and if you're a jerk, it doesn't really work, does it? You're not really loving your neighbor if you know you're supposed to love your neighbor. 
You got to do it. Your theology and your experience have to go together. How does Jesus say it in that verse I just read? He says that you're supposed to abide in my word. And then what does he say? And the truth will set you free. There's something about what you're experiencing when you can name it and understand how true it is that is very freeing. But you got to have both. you got to have both. Number four, the Celts expect their, express their faith with deep creativity. The Celts were creative and artistic in their thinking. They didn't like books at first. I don't want to write down words. I want to draw pictures. I want to sing songs. I want to have traditions. I want to make statues and carvings. That's how we express meaning. And eventually when they did get books, they made them really pretty. Okay, there was this book, you should look this up, it's called the Book of the Kells. And uh, it's this, uh, this Christian stuff, it's, an, it's uh, mostly the New Testament, and it's all this art. And uh, I actually snuck downstairs, as I sometimes do, to see what was going on at the book sale. And sitting out on the table was a book with pictures from the Book of the Kells. So I owe the book sale 50 cents. But anyway... You should, you should look, Google, you should Google the book of the Kells and look at the expressive way that they write scripture because they make it pretty and they add Celtic symbols and they draw pictures. They understood art, art. And there's certain things that you can only express in art. Okay, there's certain truths that can only be shown in creativity. You can only express artistically. Has anyone in history ever expressed their love for their spouse using pie charts and graphs and statistics? No. Poems, songs, pictures, flowers. Those things aren't less true, everybody. They're deeply true. There's certain things that a word and a fact can never express that art can. And unfortunately for Christians, a lot of times when we have Christian art, it really is, uh, it really is like a synonym for bad art, right? If like, there's a Christian movie, it tends to not be a great movie. If it's a Christian song, it's not always a great song. You know what I mean? Like we, we have lost a lot of Christian art. Uh, just this week, uh, I, two weeks ago, I picked up Newsweek magazine. The title on the cover, did anybody see this? Was Jesus Takes Hollywood. And it was, a, it was about how there's all of a sudden some really good Christian art happening through Hollywood. And people are shocked at the popularity of the show The Chosen, movies like The Jesus Revolution, and the recent surprise hit Sound of Freedom that has been just crushing it. Okay, that actually Christian art has really stepped up. And, and Newsweek is noticing. The world is noticing. I heard my teacher Len Sweet once say, actually I've heard him say it a couple times, that the apologetics of the future will be aesthetics. Let me, let me just explain that, okay? Apologetics is the defense of the faith. So you, we used to teach people how to argue with somebody about why Christianity is true, but that's not why, how people believe what they believe anymore, okay? To argue people into Christianity in the future is gonna be aesthetics, it's gonna be beautiful. Okay, they're, they're not gonna believe Christianity because you can argue it's true. They're going to believe Christianity because it's beautiful and they see how it can have an impact on their life. This kind of art, this kind of creativity the Celts got and we need. Number five, the Celts lived in deep community. I, I did a couple of sermons exploring this, but it's critical to understanding the Celts. So they built monasteries. They built 
abbeys. They built communities. They gathered to eat, to pray, to work. Not everyone lived in the abbey, but everybody was a part of the community. Everybody was sort of in and out of there. This kind of deep community developed into deep relationships. They even formalized some of those into what's called an anamkara, or a soul friend. Somebody who you could really be yourself and share your life with. The Celts became Christians because St. Patrick gathered with a group of teams, uh, gathered teams to go out into the community. And Patrick did that because his anamkara, his mentor, encouraged him to. Where in our world can we go to where we can be ourselves? where we can share our lives with one another. We can have honest conversations. I don't know where those spaces are anymore. I, I, just don't, I just don't know where those are. We need to be that space. We need to be that space. Christianity cannot be done as an individual. It's a group thing. The word saint is never singular in the entire New Testament. It's always plural. You're never a saint. You're always in the saints. Okay? To be a saint is to be a part of the group. And I, I've been thinking a lot about this this summer. This really struck me. And again, I, I joked and called us, maybe we should think of ourselves as the Northminster Abbey. And, and I don't think we should change the name. That would confuse the public dramatically. But internally, I'm starting to think more like, okay, churches do programs. Okay, Abbeys do relationships. How, how do we change to be more like that? Okay, number six, the Celts had a deep mission focus. The Celts saw their world as important. They didn't just stare at their navels and twiddle their thumbs. They got out there and they served the needs. They didn't actually try to, this is the other thing about the Celts, they did not try to bring anybody to the church. They didn't try to bring anybody to the abbey. They were, they were never about bringing, they just, they would just live their lives. And if they saw a need, they went and they filled that need. If they saw a need over here, they went and they filled that need. They just filled needs. Now, I know it's tough, and churches have trouble thinking about this. How do we go out there? How do we start serving people? But maybe it's not actually that hard. Maybe instead of waiting for the church to have a program or session to vote about something, we all need to just look around at the people around us and actually love our neighbor, like Jesus said we should. Maybe everybody here just needs... And then, you know what should happen is when, you, when you're filling a need in the community and you need help, oh, then you come back to Northminster. You come back to the Abbey and you recruit some help and you say, hey, we got to put some finances behind this idea. Hey, I need like 10 people to come with me and do this. Oh, now we got a ministry going. But I think it's not going to start like that. I think it's going to start like the Celts did, where we all look at our neighbors and we say, what do our neighbors need? We all look at the people that we pass every day when we go to the grocery store and we say, what did that person need? Okay, to be radically, radically aware. And following God's lead, have open eyes and open hearts to the leads of people around us and follow God's lead wherever we go. Okay, finally, number seven. I've emphasized this in a number of sermons, but for me, one of the key things for understanding the Celts is that they were authentically Celtic. They cared about deep authenticity. So when the Celts became Christians, they didn't just become also Roman or written. Okay? They, they kept their Celtic roots. Okay? They kept their connection to the past. 
One of the challenges we see in a lot of mission work is the tendency to not just convert people, but civilize them. So we see this in the history of missions, that a lot of times when European missionaries would come to the, to the new world and try to, make, try to do missions here, or they'd go to Africa and try to do missions there, they would try to not just convert the people of Christianity, but they'd also uh, try to convert them to their civilization. In other words, we don't just want you to find Jesus, but we also want you to speak English, and we also want you to wear pants, and we also think you shouldn't have all these piercings everywhere. And what they would do is they would try to make them English, or make them Dutch, or make them French, or whatever it was. And the problem was, when that would happen, the people who came out of their culture lost the credibility in their culture. Okay? So nobody else who doesn't wear pants and has all these piercings and speaks other language wants to listen to this person that looks English. And then they also failed to, to learn how to speak the language and to speak to their culture and their people because they were brought out of it. They lose their credibility and they lose their ability to speak to their culture. The future belongs to the incredibly local, to the authentically rich expression of following Jesus. And we all know this, right? Like, if you went to church in Africa, you would not expect somebody like me to stand up and give a sermon like this and have music like this. You would expect, if I go to Africa, it's going to sound different than here. Okay, and if I go to China, it's going to sound different than here and than Africa, right? Like, we kind of know this. And yet, when I look at American churches, we all look the same. Like most American churches, you could move them to another town and another part of the country, and they'd be fine. It'd be pretty much the same. Like it's very, can I say it? We're bland. It's bland. This works everywhere. Instead of being radically local. Like like what I mean is, I want to see Northminster be a church that's so Northminster and so our region that if you took us to Pittsburgh, it'd be weird. Right? Because we fit here. We're just so authentically us, right? That's the future of ministry. It's not bland. It's authentic. That's the only way we can speak to this culture. Is people have got to be able to be themselves. And this, I think, is actually potentially a real strength of Northminster that we should be exploiting a lot more. How do we look like a church coming from and built for our community? What is the good news for Lawrence County? Not just for the world. What is good news in our county, in our region, for our people, for our neighbors? That's the question. I think the Celts got this so well. In our shallow world, we could all use some more depth. And I think the Celts, the Celts show us the way. One of the things I have said throughout this series is that this history is part of our heritage, is part of our DNA. And maybe you're not Scotch-Irish, but, but you're Presbyterian now, right? Which means spiritually, you're Scotch-Irish, okay? And that means we're not just Reformed, we're Celtic. It's part of who we are. Part of who we are. Maybe not your genetic DNA, but it is our Presbyterian DNA. And I think it's kind of a missing part. And it's been good this summer to get in touch with it. Like discovering something about myself, really. And so it's my my hope that uh, a lot of people connected with it, 
And I hope we'll all be better, we'll be a better church by going into this deep dive into the depths of Celtic Christianity. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the example of the Celts. Lord, for the way that you worked in their midst. But so many people followed you because of the work, the lives, the witness of the Celtic Christians. Lord, I thank you that that's part of our legacy. And now, Lord, as we look at our world, may we be faithful. May we do the things that you have for us to do. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.